The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good Monday morning to everyone. You're watching Squat Box Europe with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your Monday morning headlines. The Dow jumps more than 350 points after the jobs report puts the economy in a sweet spot. But it's cautious trade in Asia as investors eye high-level US-China trade talks due to restart this week. HSBC, though, is reportedly set to slash up to 10,000 jobs as the lender looks to cut costs under the new interim CEO, Noel Quinn. A calmer day in Hong Kong after anti-government demonstrations turned violent as tens of thousands of protests against the city's use of emergency law during their first warning from the Chinese military. French President Emmanuel Macron says the EU will decide on a Brexit deal by the end of the week as UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says the bloc shouldn't bet on a delay. And have you got what it takes? Well, that's the title of the new book out from Steve Schwartzman. Here from the chairman, CEO and co-founder of Blackstone Group coming up in around about 30 minutes time. Morning. Let me take you through some of the market action as we wrapped up the Friday session. Much calmer day as we closed up uh, with some very strong percentage gains right across the board. And you can see in lockstep by uh, 1.4% gain for all of the major indices. This was the reaction to the non-fund payrolls report after a fairly volatile week as we started out the month of October. This data point uh, at least coming through and, and beating some expectations. So what do we have over the course of the week with the gains of uh, the Dow, the S&P, Russell 2000, Dow Jones, Chat? Transports Index saw their third negative week in a row, but with the gains in session today, some of it really focused around the financial sector, real outperformance in that part of the market. WTI also uh, broke its eight-day losing streak, so element of support coming through from the oil sector. But when it comes to the jobs report, this is what the market was digesting. Uh, an economy that added 136,000 jobs in the month of September, slightly lower than the headline number the market had been anticipating, about 145,000 points roughly won the expectations on the street. Average hourly earnings month on month was flat. So very slow growth there. Nothing really transpiring on the wages side to report back. But it was the unemployment rate that captured a lot of attention. And we were expecting our rate steady at 3.7%. But you could see the decline to a level we've not seen on the chart since 1969 at 3.5%. So that uh, was a, a, a number that uh, certainly captured some headlines and drove some of that market action that we saw. But the course of the week, what a month of October, what a start has, has been after a fairly steep sell-off at the start of the week. And you can see the steady decline. We then picked up and the data having a bit of an instrumental impact at the back of the week. That's for sure. And at the beginning of the week, it was a very negative reaction to the ISM manufacturing numbers, the services number, one of the initial reads on the jobs number. But uh, that's a 3.5% unemployment handle telling you the US is still creating jobs. So uh, for the course of the week, you can see uh, the trade down 0.9 of a percent. 
uh, despite the gain of 1.4% in session Friday, still some of that deep rating at the start of the week, uh, making it a very challenging week to recover from. The Asian markets, a uh, number of out of action today, so a little bit of an impact on liquidity. China remains shut for Golden Week on the back of those National Day celebrations, but uh, the Hong Kong market also shut today from Chongyang Festival, and uh, this is uh, effectively the ninth day of the ninth lunar month, even though it's not the ninth day. What we've got is a, just uh, a date in the calendar, which is effectively to look at the practices, age-old practices of ancestor worship. So that's what uh, many people across Hong Kong are doing. And it is a step away from some of the big protests that have, we have focused our attention over recent weeks, recent days. So the rest of the markets are mainly digesting some of that news, but also what's transpired on Wall Street, particularly for the Australian market on the data front, six-tenths of a percent high. It is a firmer day of trade. The Indian market, the Nifty 50, uh, has also gained about half of a percent. The only calls here in Europe as we watch closely some of the signals, we had a very strong session playing out Friday, seven-tenths of a percent roughly higher for European stock markets. But over the course of the week, it was red ink that we saw flashing up the boards, about 3% coming off the stock share of 600. So as we look to start of the week, you can see a couple of red arrows for the Italian market, not much for the FTSE, but still pointing down, and a patch of green for the DAX and for the CAC. So a little bit mixed, a bit choppy before the start of the trade for Monday. Steve. Karen, there's a great article in Forbes late last year. And I say it's a great article. It's an article which I completely agreed with. That doesn't make it a great article. <laughs> makes it a, very, a confirmatory uh, article as well. And, and the title of this article is The Myth of Jobs That Don't Exist Yet. I'll, I'll cut it to the, the bone here. David, Derek Newton wrote this piece saying since 2030 is only 12 years away when he wrote this article, the idea that 85% of jobs taken by today's learners will be new should be laughable. It is a complete myth that students will be taking jobs that don't exist yet. And I really like that article because I think it really fits in with the zeitgeist uh, of this, this idea of is, is juxtaposition with this idea that don't worry about your kids because there's going to be so many great new jobs out there as well. I mentioned this, uh, and Karen will come in now on this, because HSBC is reportedly planning to slash up to 10,000 jobs in a cost-cutting drive. Now, according to the Financial Times, the interim CEO, Noel Quinn, is working with the CFO, Ewan Stevenson, to make savings in each of the bank's four major units. The job cuts will reportedly focus on high-paid roles and will come on top of some 4,000 redundancies announced in August. HSBC declined to comment on the report. So the reason, of course, why I mentioned this myth of jobs that don't exist yet mm. it is because there is this this idea that old economy branch facing banking jobs they're all going to go but don't worry because there'll be a raft of other jobs which are going to sweep in as well which are going to replace these highly paid roles it's not completely incorrect if you look at some of the banks. I mean, if we see Commerce Bank's example, huge slashes, huge slashing in jobs earlier this year, and some of this was leading to new hires down the track. So there is an element that there may be a glimmer of hope. However, when you talk about large-scale job cuts like this, and if we add the 4,000 earlier to the 10,000, now 14,000 puts this vaguely in the realm of a Deutsche Bank. We don't know the detail, of course. Deutsche Bank's 18,000 job cuts are spread out to 2022, but the headline number, very big, amount that's coming out of the bank. And this tells you it is about chasing profits. You've got very weak margins now, very, very low level of profitability in some of these banks because of negative interest rates, very weak trade that's happening globally. So you've got very rash action that has to take place. Whether this shores up 
the banks, both banks in this case, HSBC and Deutsche Bank down the track, to be able to hire again and position for the future? That's the big question, Mark. And you yeah. would hope that this is a, a decision that will lead to some positive If our use. viewers were looking for a route that's on the week, they're not going to get one because I think we're 100% on the same page. Look, there are many surveys out there. There was a Wells Fargo one um, earlier this year talking about 10% of banking jobs will go globally over the next decade. I saw another report talking about 60,000 plus jobs already announced to go this year as well. Uh, and look, look, let's just ask our viewers one question. I'm looking, looking down the barrel, ask you all this question. When was the last time you you, ladies and gentlemen. I know it's a bit early for some of you. When was the last time that any of you went into a bank branch? Or when was the last time you looked at your banking app on your smartphone? The answer to the latter question is probably about 10 minutes ago. The answer to the former question is, uh, actually, I can't remember because the last reason I ever thought of going mm. into a bank was paying in checks. And now I can do all of that if I need to for people who are archaically still using checks. Um, I can do that on my handset here. So the fact is we're going to have less, for a start, there's less market activity. So mm. there's a natural cyclical thing going on here. Less proprietary trading now as well. Yeah. Most of these banks officially, I say officially, don't <laughs> prop trade, but we all know what you guys do with your Delta Two hedging. Uh, less branches, can't defame a whole industry. Mm. Uh, and of course, we are massively overbanked. You look at a country like Germany, where there are thousands of banks, way too many banks. And as you mentioned, Deutsche, a lack of profitability. Add to that more fintech, which is something you're completely on top of, and more algos. A lot of these roles will not exist within months or years, let alone decades. I take your point on the retail side, but if you look at that Deutsche Bank announcement earlier in the year, equities trading, research, derivatives trading. So the investment banking arm was, was the part that was shrinking. This might be controversial, but just something just to chew over. You've seen a lot of the, the pivot in some of this main business to the US banks. So they've cleaned up effectively where Europe has been downsizing because of the profitability game. But hard decision taken earlier by Europe? Does it shore up the continent in 10 years' time? Because those jobs have gone. They don't exist in future. But the US is keeping some of those positions. So sure. will the hard decisions have to be made on Wall Street later on? Absolutely. Sorry we couldn't have an argument first thing. We'll try later on. Let's push on to Hong Kong. Uh, protesters there have defied new government laws banning face masks, sparking fresh rounds of violence with authorities. Chief Executive Carrie Lam invoked colonial era legislation on Friday in a bid to quell activists. Let's get out to Sherry for more in Hong Kong. Sherry, the uh, big headline comment has been uh, also that warning from the Chinese military over the weekend. That's right, Dad. That comes after we saw no lull in violence in the summer, uh, in this uh, Hong Kong's protest this past weekend, even after the mask ban was imposed with the chief executive turning to her emergency powers. So, yes, there's some protesters outside one of the PLA garrisons here in Hong Kong using their labor beams to disrupt the operations there. And we saw Chinese troops holding up a warning sign in yellow flag saying uh, that the protesters were breaching the law and they may be prosecuted. This is uh, something that we don't really see every day. So certainly uh, making some headlines there. But really the question or the headline that I should, you know, really highlight for you guys and our audience is that the mask ban that took effect on Saturday didn't really work. We saw protesters, the peaceful ones or not so peaceful ones, all wearing masks this past weekend to really defy the idea of the Hong Kong government banning wearing masks in public demonstrations. In the meantime, it actually led to the point where Chief Executive Carrie Lam having to release yet another video statement one day after announcing the ban on Saturday, having to defend the mask ban. Take a listen to what she had to say.
The destruction recently has affected the peacefulness of Hong Kong. It has affected citizens going out, going to work. And I've noticed a lot of shopping malls have had to close. A lot of shops have had to stop their services. This has greatly affected the livelihood of the Hong Kong people. So the scene that she was just talking about there certainly um, is this it's still the scene that we're looking at here in Hong Kong, even on this Monday, which is a public holiday. I'm standing outside Wan Chai Station, and uh, which is shut along with many other MTR stations here in Hong Kong today. This comes after a complete shutdown of MTR stations one and a half days this past weekend. And uh, this is really important to highlight because this is a major transportation means for a lot of Hong Kong people. And perhaps that can explain the empty streets of Hong Kong this morning. Really, uh, transportation lockdown, perhaps, and a lot of uh, nervousness out there playing out with major malls, of course, being shut down. Airport Express that connects the city and the international airport also partially affected today. And of course, that nervousness is playing out into the banking system. We saw over the weekend Hong Kong's Monetary Authority, which is a de facto central bank of the territory, having to release a statement and really addressing some of the online rumors about uh, the chance of a, well, cash withdrawal ban. And they're saying uh, the robust banking system is not in that stage yet. And also highlighting that uh, they've got enough liquidity in Hong Kong's banking system. And of course, the question is, guys, uh, after that weekend, after the public holiday today, how Hong Kong will really pick up the pieces as we saw some of the MTR stations uh, being uh, having been targeted and uh, vandalized. And we saw many Chinese banks as well as some pro-Beijing businesses having to see their the big damage from some angry protesters. Guys? Sherry, thank you very much for bringing us the update on uh, what has been an incredible story to be watching. Coming up on the show, put up or shut up, Hong Kong exchanges and clearing faces a looming deadline to make a formal offer for the LSE. We'll be live outside the London Stock Exchange with more right after the break. And we're going to speak with the Osram CFO Ingo Bank after the Austrian chipmaker AMS failed in its bid to take over the German company. But what next? There is a lot of options on the table. And just a reminder, if you can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Hit the CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back. It's crunch time for the Hong Kong exchanges and clearing as it faces a deadline later this week to make a formal bid for the London Stock Exchange or walk away from the deal. 
Reuters reported last week that some LSE investors want HKEX to raise its offer by up to 20% and sweeten the cash component of the agreement. The LSE has rejected the current deal, preferring a plan to buy Refinitiv for $27 billion next. Now, Juliana is outside the LSE. Uh, and as an aside, I presume the Extinction Rebellion people are not there at the moment because I understand that they're going to be pottering around the capital at some stage this week. But Juliana, in terms of this bid, uh, is it uh, the political ramifications as well that are worrying some investors? Steve, that's absolutely part of the issue here. There are a number of things worrying investors, and I would say political and regulatory uncertainty are front and center. Now, in terms of this week, October 9th is the deadline we are all watching. So it's Wednesday by which Hong Kong Exchange must either make a formal offer or walk away. And what we're hearing, uh, the Times reported over the weekend that Hong Kong Exchange is intending to raise its offer this week after receiving conditional support from some key LSE shareholders. Now, in terms of what we're hearing otherwise from LSE shareholders, there's really three components that they're looking for to take this bid even seriously. One is the absolute level, the price uh, that Hong Kong Exchange will offer. And just to remind you, the initial offer was for 83.61 pounds per share for LSE. And they're looking for somewhere in the range of 90 to 100 pounds, as you mentioned there in your headline. Uh, They're also looking for an increase in the cash component. The initial bid was three quarters shares, Hong Kong exchange shares and we would the LSC shareholders and the LSC board would like to see this come down in the cash component rise and then thirdly they're looking for governance changes and this is tied somewhat to the issue around political uh, the political challenges of getting this deal through seven out of 13 board members at the Hong Kong exchange are currently appointed by the Hong Kong government now the Hong Kong is obviously a Chinese territory so there are some concerns around the relationship uh, between Beijing and Hong Kong and what that would mean for LSE should Hong Kong take hold of this British institution. Now, on the political side of things as well, I would highlight, of course, tensions in Hong Kong have escalated since September 11th, this initial uh, proposal from Hong Kong Exchange. And you just were hearing there from Sherry, I know, before the break, that uh, even after we saw Carrie Lam crack down last week, the violence has continued unabated this weekend. So that's a very difficult backdrop for this deal to come together. And then secondly, it is Beijing. And the question of whether mainland China actually would support this deal. And uh, in terms of the signaling we've had so far, we just remind you that uh, in their rejection letter, LSE wrote that they prefer to continue using the Shanghai uh, Stock Exchange as their preferred direct channel to access Chinese markets. And after this, uh, People's Daily, the official newspaper in China, came out and applauded LSE for rejecting the deal and choosing mainland China as their preferred partner. So if Beijing withholds their support for this deal, it's a very, very difficult to get across the line. So the question, of course, first and foremost, will Hong Kong Exchange come back with a new offer before Wednesday? And then will anything they say be enough to actually get LSC shareholders across the line? Guys? Juliana, thank you very much for bringing us that story. Well, from one deal to another, AMS has failed in its 4.5 billion euro takeover bid of Osram. The Austrian shipmaker secured only 51.6% of Osram's shares, short of the 62.5% threshold required for an all-cash acquisition. But AMS is still aiming for a deal and has said it will explore strategic options to acquire the German lighting group. Ingo Bank, the CFO of Osram, joins us now. Ingo, thank you very much for joining us. The message now from AMS is that it will leverage its position as Osram's largest shareholder to have a dialogue with you to continue this acquisition. Are you open to that conversation? 
good morning, Karen, and thanks for having me. Um, uh, yeah, as you said, rightfully so, the offer was uh, rejected by our shareholders, and we now have a new anchor shareholder with AMS that holds now 20% of our shares. And so far, we've invited them for talks, and uh, we have to see what the outcome will be. What is uh, in the price now? Because we saw the deal that was uh, effectively offered up from AMS, 41 euros per share, valuing your company at 4.5 billion euros. Is it enough money when private equity has also been circling? Well, apparently for our shareholders, that was not the case. Uh, as you can see in the vote that they clearly cast it uh, last week with 51.6% only uh, accepting the offer and the offer therefore failing. So we have to see uh, what eventually will turn out. As you know, Bain and uh, Advent are still performing due diligence uh, at this point in time. Uh, they said in their letter to us that well, this will only take a matter of weeks and we have to see. Uh, what the outcome will be. But at this point in time, it's not clear whether they will actually have a binding takeover offer for us as well. Um, good morning to you. What is the best chance of your shares ever getting back to the uh, €77.64 they hit in early January 2018? Would it be A, private equity, B, uh, AMS, or C, an organic strategy? Well, we've always believed in our strategy to shape the portfolio towards becoming a more semiconductor-based high-tech uh, photonics company, and that's what we will continue to do. Uh, we also said that on the way there, too, we will do organic and inorganic uh, transactions like we did those in the last 12 to 14 months as well. And that's what we're pursuing right now. We don't want to speculate uh, on all the other options. We focus now on being independent and driving the strategy as we formulate it. Sure, Ingo. But given the fact that your shares are barely half of what they were at their peak at the start of last year, is the organic strategy floundering? No, I don't think so. The organic strategy is still there. I think compared to a year ago, of course, we're now uh, in more difficult waters as far as the industries uh, are concerned that we're operating in, especially the automotive industry. Uh, we're now at the downturn of that cycle and we have to move through that cycle. So that doesn't change the strategy but puts us, of course, in a more difficult industrial environment that we have to now navigate through. So we're doing this with a number of performance programs and we're working on cost efficiency. We've now, uh, in the last of months, sold two parts of our portfolio, our lighting service business in the U.S. and now also our European luminaire business. These are all things we articulated 12 months ago on the strategy and we will just push forward doing so also in the next 12 months. Ingo, we spoke to the AMS CEO, Alexander Averke, uh, the other week and he did tell us a fairly compelling story about how he could connect up your technology with his own technology. I must say, before he was on the show, I was somewhat sceptical because this is a business, AMS, that's trying to reduce its reliance on Apple. But where do you see the future with private equity or teamed up with AMS? Where do you think the logic is for shareholders on, on the two of those options? Well, when we, when we look at the AMS uh, deal as it was articulated, there was clearly some strategic merit to it, especially for our opto semiconductors business. Uh, and I've said that also in, on prior occasions, but there were clear differences in the view, particularly for our digital business with, with AMS management, where they had different views. Our concerns with AMS were also that they had a fairly high debt level and a very high dependency on one single customer. And if you put that all together, we felt that that was a significant risk, at least to, to highlight. Um, with private equity, we said that the um, alignment with the former consortium, Bencala, was clearly on a standalone independent strategy with the three strategic pillars that we have as a company. 
And but for now, let's be clear, we don't have an offer on the table. Uh, Bank Kala was also voted to be a no. Uh, AMS was not accepted, and it's not clear whether Edson and Bank Capital will eventually uh, make a binding offer to us. But I guess my problem is that this is an industry that promised a lot. And I know that it's not your responsibility going back to 2013 of all the promises. We've talked about this before that we were offered in the IPO. But this is an industry that's promised a brave new world in the 21st century uh, with all kinds of amazing technologies. But for shareholders, I think it's fair to say it just hasn't worked, is it? I mean, this is why I have my questions about the benefits of remaining as an organic company. uh, organic standalone. It just hasn't worked for shareholders. And, and dare I say so, without the bid situation at the moment, your shares would be floundering pretty much still at the IPO price. Well, I think uh, the promises of LED technology has, as we have worked out so far pretty well in, in most of the industries that we're working in. I mean, in automotive lighting, we still have a lot of potential, uh, especially if, if you look at headlights and interior lighting. Uh, if you think about sensing uh, in cars uh, and in other applications, smartphones, for instance, there's still a lot to be done. So I think we need to be careful not to mix up the current industrial and economic environment in which we operate and the longer-term strategic growth drivers that we have. So for that, uh, we feel still that we are on the right track. Uh, and I said before, we, we do need to do also some inorganic moves to especially uh, add to the portfolio in our, our center Uh, business, which we said before, and and that doesn't change. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.